Now, what is there to talk about? Does this give you a little bit more of a framework about how this works and how to work with it? See, you know, I'm happy to talk about the concepts and the framework as long as people are able to make use of it and bring it into their practice. You know, for me, I am a, I'm a contemplative. That's what I do. And that's my angle, is, is how do you make it work? You know? And so if we can get a sense of how do we make it work, then I feel like, well, that's what I'm, that's what, that's what I'm here to do. to recognize that that's vibhavatanha, that is the desire for non-becoming. So disassociation and exiting stage left is desire. (laughs) And we've done that for a really good reason, and so we have to understand that there has to be a better reason for actually staying present. But the better reason that I've found is, is, is that you need a body in order to wake up out of suffering. And so when we actually have a body, when we inhabit our body, then that is the place, that's the ground, that's the framework where we can resolve this stuff. And the resolution of this stuff, there's absolutely no language to give to what it feels like when it actually releases. And so I completely empathize with how uncomfortable it is to come back into a body when we're actually wanting to escape. You know? But part of the reason why we're wanting to escape is because we haven't been attending in a skillful way to begin with. You know? So it's a little bit like, you know, most of us don't want to live in a dog pen. You know? But a a temple? Living in a temple? Living in a temple feels very different. So our relationship with our own body has often been that of relating to a dog pen. You know? But when we relate to our own physical body as a temple, then it's possible for attention to stay immersed and in contact. And that helps. Just a comment. I, I thought that uh, oscillating back and forth was very helpful. I It's very helpful, and it's particularly helpful when what we're dealing with is the kind of unpleasant sensation that's associated with trauma, because one has got to learn how to oscillate back and forth between pleasant and unpleasant, so that one is not flooding one's system with more than one can navigate. And um, so you live it, but but you're not just burying it. Yeah, and it's not like a rockweiler. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, with a butterfly, you know. It's not a rockweiler. It's not something that's gripped and tight. It's open and relaxed and moving. Yeah, and very strongly with the reaction to what's happening. 
So the reaction is very much related to how much suffering is present, how much dukkha is present. When the mind is very clear and we're with something that's incredibly unpleasant but there's no reactivity to it, there's no tension, or there's minimal tension. When we're dealing with extremely strong, unpleasant sensation or unpleasant mental objects, it's difficult for there to be no tension. That's why it's helpful to oscillate because even when the mind is very concentrated and very clear, it's just tiring dealing with something that's unpleasant. So we need to make sure we renew and refresh, rejuvenate. So there you're talking about oscillating between something unpleasant as the object and then the, the reaction to that and shifting to something pleasant and coming back. So the shifting to something pleasant is not the escape. It's purposeful to give a little bit of a break yeah, so we have this feeling that, you know, if there's any anything that's unpleasant in the field, that we need to grab hold of it and hold it until it dissolves. And that's it's not... going to be there when you come back. That's not right understanding. You know, we need to contact it, and then we need to move our attention away, and then recontact it with resource. And that's particularly true when what we're dealing with is something which is long, enduring, and chronic. Okay. Now, if you take your attention away and go have a binge on alcohol or morphine, you're going to have some repercussions when you bring it back. It's not going to want to stay because you're going to have all of that result of all of that in you. So what we bring our attention away to attend to and how we focus our attention when we take it away is going to really have an influence on what's going to happen when we bring it back. We can do it in ways which are unskillful, and we can do it in ways which are skillful. So when you take, you, you talk during meditation about shifting the attention to something pleasant, are you, are you, would that be an object or a sensation? I guess it could be anything that just... Could be anything. Pleasant. You could feel the reaction to that. That's right there for a while. Yeah. You know, for some people they really go deep with the breath. For other people their heart really opens with chanting or devotion. You know. It, it's not that it has to be any particular thing, but what's really helpful is to begin to understand that our f- attention can shift and that we can chi- we can direct that. No. It's 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 really just as much contact as needed to connect and to move, and then to take it away. You know? So we have all of this range, you know? And what we place our attention on can be any number of things. You know, a flower. Uh, considering the beauty of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, we can bring metta, the qualities of kindness or compassion. All kinds of things. So we're not doing it in order to avoid, we're doing it in order to nourish. And then we come back. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that uh, portable tools are the foundation. Does that imply 
have to go outside the road across the building, so to speak, or is it all contained in the eightfold number pad? So what I'm getting at is if, uh, uh, like, dependent origination, is that embedded in the eightfold? Yes, the dependent origination is the more detailed understanding of the second noble truth. And then the ending of dependent origination or the cessation of dependent origination is the third noble truth. So in terms of Buddhist teachings, it depends on who you ask. So within certain traditions, they would say the four noble truths is enough and everything is there and all you need to do is understand that. And others would say, no. Well, I'm thinking about the bodhisattva vows and the way that influences people and the way that influences the philosophy about what happens. And so, you know, when one takes the bodhisattva vows, the the, the teachings are is, is that one is is staying present to allow all of suffering for all beings to end. And so, the eradication of all ignorance on that level is not the ending of it; it's the beginning of the bodhisattva path. But this is like, what we get into here is philosophical doctrines and the differences between different traditions. And I say, you know, for me, where I feel confident is just that I know that the practice works and that I know, you know, in my own life, and my own experience, I have taken the bodhisattva vows and I understand how important they are. And when I get to this place of figuring out when all ignorance ends and the bodhisattva vows then really come onto life, then I can talk about it. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's a little bit speculative. <laughs> David would be good for that because he would have all of that mapped out and be able to say, that's his specialty. He's the professor. I'm the practitioner. You're saying you're on that path that you haven't experienced. The complete ending of all ignorance? Yeah. Yes, I haven't experienced the complete ending of all all ignorance. (laughs) I can say that with complete confidence. (laughs) Doesn't mean that I haven't experienced the release of suffering. And it doesn't mean that I haven't experienced insight, but the complete eradication of all ignorance. Outside, if you're, when you've experienced it within yourself. I've experienced the different different states and stages, but this is um, that's the path of an arhat. That's the realization of an arhat. That's somebody who has no more suffering. At all for any reason under any circumstance. Even if no one brings so much. Even if no one brings so much. Sophia, that's it. Yes, please. As one shifts between the 
unpleasant, unpleasant thoughts rather than the body sensation. And is, is the, and I'm going to say goal, although that seems kind of like a grasping term there, but is the idea, concept behind this shifting to alleviate the suffering that comes with the unpleasant or just to be able to not be attached and non-reactive? What we're trying to see is the difference between the object itself and the reaction to the object. That's what we're trying to see. When we're shifting from the pleasant to the unpleasant, we're doing that because when we just fix on to something unpleasant, everything gets gripped up. You know, the muscles get tense and everything gets tense and the jaw gets tense and the face gets tense and, and, the, and then our whole system starts to with the tension. So when we, when we stay with something and then release it, we learn how to have discernment and volition in our relationship with what we're attending to. Okay? So it's not that shifting it from an unpleasant object to a pleasant object is to avoid the reaction. It's to give us capacity to be with the reaction. If you have to dig a trench, you've got a shovel, okay? And it's a long trench. You need to take breaks. You need to have iced tea. You need to have a sandwich. You need to sit down. It's not because you don't want to get the trench finished. It's because when you're digging a trench, it takes time and persistence and effort. And if you pace your energy right, then you can finish the trench. You can be with the trench. You can dig out the trench. When we're with something which is unpleasant, our habit is to contract, is to recoil, to not want to be there. And so we need to learn how to be present with something that's unpleasant, where we're not contracting and recoiling. And as we are learning, and even when we do know, it's helpful not to stay gripped in it. When you start the trench, you don't start the trench and continue working until the trench is completely finished. You stop when you need to stop. You rest when you need to rest. You take a drink when you need to take a drink. It's not that you're avoiding the trench. You're realizing there's a whole body, human being, that needs to be attended to to take care of this stuff in the right way. Does that help? Yeah, the metaphor really helped. Yeah. It seems, seems to me that, that, at least for me, it's helpful in, in that way and also just that I can give myself permission to go somewhere else. And that it's still there. It doesn't need to be gripping somewhere in my body all the time. I can leave it. I can come back. And sometimes that's hard to do without kind of, kind of saying it's okay. Well, we have these really um, I, strong ideas about what being a good meditator is, and that. Those ideas usually have no compassion at all for where we're actually at. <laughs> you know, so if you've had three nights in a row of not sleeping, your capacity is going to be considerably reduced than if you've just come off of a refreshing, nourishing break 
where you've been able to rest and to sleep and to exercise and spend quality time with people in all of the right amounts. Okay? And that's okay. I mean, that's a good thing. It's, it's the recognition. We have to recognize where we're at, and that partly determines what our capacity is. And our capacity will fluctuate every single day. And so part of our responsiveness is to know that as our capacity fluctuates, then what we need to do is different. So if you've been on a three-month retreat and you're very still and very concentrated, it might be possible to spend six hours with pain and not change your focus. If you've come off of three nights of not sleeping, you might be able to spend five minutes with the pain and then you need to take two aspirin, have a bath, and go to bed. And both are appropriate for the circumstance. But what we're having to navigate is this overlay of who I should be and how I should practice if I were a good meditator. And that is a source of a lot of suffering. (laughs) And so what's needed is constantly being able to see where am I at right now? What can I manage? And because one of the things, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes things happen and knock me. And when they knock me, I go into a regressed state. And so I'm dealing with the consciousness of a young child, okay? And then I have to navigate that, which I have skills to do, and I know how to do that, all right? But when I'm dealing with the consciousness of a young child, I'm not dealing with the consciousness of a, of a person who's my physical age. So I have to bring the physical age part into the moment of the mind state of this young child and bring us both back into current time, present moment experience, okay? And that can happen in an instant, you know? And it can happen totally out of the blue. You know, I can get an email or a call or I see something or I smell something, something triggers, and I'm in a regressed mind state. It is completely futile to sit there and say, I shouldn't be feeling this way. You know, I've been meditating this many years. I've been a nun this many years. I have traveled this many places. I should not be feeling this way. You know, it's like... I was walking in England and somebody, it was raining out, and there was no clouds. There was no clouds. There was not a single cloud in the sky, and it was raining. We got the drops, and our clothes were getting dark, and they said, it can't be raining. There's no clouds, okay? So it's like, well, it is raining. It is raining. That is what's happening. It is raining. (laughs) Can we be with what is happening? and respond to it in a way which is wise and compassionate. And it's humbling because it's not supposed to be raining. We don't have a framework for understanding why it's raining. I don't have a framework always for understanding why these things happen when I get knocked. You know? But that's what's happening. If that's what's happening, then I need to deal with it. I appreciated the part during the meditation when, and I can't remember exactly what you said, but it was sort of like, don't argue with it, don't, you know, just sort of be with it. Because I think that's part of what happens for me is what you're just saying. is like, come up with all these reasons and then my, my thoughts are going. That, that's just another way of getting away. So I, was, I was really interested watching all, so many different ways that I have of getting away. That was, that was interesting, too. Yeah, the getting away strategies are rather very sophisticated. <laughs> but you have to remember, ignorance is not stupid. Okay. You know, it's very clever, and it can co-opt all kinds of stuff that even looks very wise and skillful and holy. Looks can look very holy. 
and it's actually escape. You know, you can read scriptures as 100% escape. You know, you can do anything. And what the intention is, is I don't want to be here. I don't want to know. I don't want to have anything to do with what's actually happening. I do not want to show up for what is actually happening. enlightened being does not suffer so they would certainly recognize the loss of a person but there would be no grasping or clinging or attachment or wanting it to be different so but you would feel that there would be no sorrow yeah they would notice no sorrow because the, the amount of sorrow that we have is directly connected to the amount of attachment that we have when there's no sorrow there's no grief we don't grieve when the leaves fall off of the tree. Why? Well, the level, I mean, the way that we are um, invested in the cycle, the level of identification, it goes deep. And it, um, it takes um, deep seeing, deep clarity, deep uprooting to get underneath that stuff. realize that there's many different stages of enlightenment and what you're talking about is is the most most ultimate stage of enlightenment and you know one of the stories that I heard which I really appreciated because it actually takes it more back into a a human realm that I can relate to was a I think it was a Tibetan master who lost his son and was weeping and somebody came to him and said you know master or Rinpoche why are you weeping and he said, I don't have the words exactly, but it was something to the effect that there are many illusions in the world that we have, and the illusion of our son and their life and their death is a very big one. You know, it's like, you know, of course it hurts, and of course you cry, and that's part of what happens when you are still feeling all of this stuff, you know. Somebody, somebody had said to somebody who'd lost their mother, don't be attached. And Ajahn Viridamo's response was wanting to punch him in the face, you know? It's like, you know, it's, it's so gross to use that kind of teachings of non-attachment 
to a person who's in that kind of process unless they themselves have um, actually touched that. Deepama said that to somebody. Deepama had suffered enormously. She had lost her health. She'd lost two children. She'd lost her husband. She'd lost her mother, all in a period of about 10 years. And somebody came to her having lost something. And she just went, you are going to lose everything. You know? But she wasn't doing it as a good idea. She was doing it from that place of having been there and understood and realized the end of it. There's a difference between somebody who's telling it to you because it's a good idea and somebody who's actually been there. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other questions to close? Anna, could you talk about ignorance? Is ignorance basically this belief in I, me, mine? Ignorance has many different faces to it. And I think, you know, um, any expression that wants to see something as impermanent as permanent, something to see as um, inherently unsatisfactory as satisfactory, and something that has no um, permanent, lasting self is I, me, or mine are expressions of ignorance. So when we grasp onto something, we're grasping onto the me that wants something that will make me happy because that thing is going to last and be the thing that's going to do it for me. So there's lots of expressions of ignorance. There's the eye-making, there's the identification, There's long relating to the object as being somehow satisfactory. There's not seeing that it changes. There's lots. And it usually comes into this nice package with a bow on it, and it looks perfect. It looks real. It looks absolutely convincing. We'd spend $100 million for it. You know, and it takes us to hell every time. It's guaranteed. See, that's where we have all these ideas, you know. So we have this idea that when we let go, there's some kind of a fireworks thing that goes through our seventh chakra, and there's this whole big, huge display of bliss. You know, one of the things about enlightenment is it's an acquired taste. And the reason why it's an acquired taste is because it doesn't grab our attention. Letting go does not grab your attention in the same way that when we focus on the space in the room, There's nothing about it in any way which is exciting, okay? 
But when we have been focused on something which is intensely painful and realize that we can change our focus of attention to the space, and in the space there's no grasping, there's just space, then there's the peace of letting go. All right? That peace of letting go is described in many different ways. All right? Some of it is very equanimous. Other people talk about it as bliss. What's important is not to make a framework about what it is going to look like, but to do it. To see for yourself. When you let go, what happens? What does it feel like? Then you can answer your own question. So I would like to close by um, sharing the blessings of our time together and expressing appreciation, particularly for Dave and Barbara for holding this. If it hadn't been for them, this would have not have happened. Mm. And David and Natalie for their willingness and welcome for me to offer these teachings. And, you know, with the venue here, which is partly connected because of the Bodhi Mind, the organization. And so... Anytime there's an activity like this, there are many causes and conditions that give rise to it. And so I have appreciated your interest and your attention, your questions and your presence, and I'd like to share the blessings of this with everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.